Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Welcome to the Safina Society podcast I'm Ilyas, your host this week And also the entire podcast panel um, Inshallah, uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to talk about That are uh, that I've been thinking about and I've been discussing with uh, some of the brothers and uh, With Dr. Shadi and uh, with some other people as well um, so just to get started right away on it, um, the first thing that I really wanted to discuss is the conception of rights, um, in Islam, what we consider rights and versus what may be seen as rights by the greater society, uh, governmental bodies, maybe even our own, uh, philosophizing out of our heads what we think should and shouldn't be a right. So to get started, I wanted to just uh, refer to some ahadith that I think are a good illustration of the points that I wanted to make. The first of them is related on the authority of Anas ibn Malik, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa was brought some milk which was mixed with well water. And this is something that the people used to do um, well water is very cool because it's coming from deep in the ground. You know, once you go down past a certain level, which is at least how deep most wells go, most things down at that level are around 50 degrees, which is very cool. Um, and so they would mix that cold water with milk and it would make a delicious drink, especially in a, in a hot, dry environment. Um, and so that drink was brought to the Prophet whilst he was in a gathering. And in that gathering, um, it's related in the, in the hadith that to his right was a Bedouin. And that's all the name, that's all the information we have. It's just simply referred to as a Bedouin. Which means that he probably wasn't one of the prominent Sahaba. He wasn't someone that lived in Medina regularly. Um, we don't even know his name. Uh, as an aside though, we should bear in mind that anyone who came into contact with the Prophet and who accepted Islam and who died on Iman, this is a Sahabi. And this, this is a person who has a higher maqam with Allah than we could ever hope for. And this is without any doubt. Because this is a person whom Allah chose for that great, this tremendous honor of having, having met the Prophet ﷺ and been a person of Iman and have died on that Iman. This is a tremendous, tremendous blessing from Allah on that person. Their status is unquestionable and we should bear in mind the honor that that person has. And I emphasize this because that is who was sitting to the right of the Prophet wasallam. this Bedouin man. To his left was Abu Bakr as-Siddiq And Abu Bakr is Abu Bakr. Right? Um, and yet, the Prophet wasallam took the drink when it was given to him, he drank from it, and then he handed it to the Bedouin man on his right, saying to him, from the right hand to the right hand. And there's also another incident similar to it, related from Sahl ibn uh, Sa'd al-Ansari, that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was brought a drink, and he drank some of it. And there was a boy at his right and some old men on his left. And that he said to the boy, والسلام, he said to him, Will you give me permission? The Prophet وسلم, asked the boy, Will you give me permission to give it to these people? And the boy said, No, Ya Rasulullah, I would not prefer anyone to get my portion from you. So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam placed it in his hand, the drink. And the third uh, the third narration incident that I wanted to 
discuss is one that I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with already, so I won't go into much of the detail. Um, this is, there was an, uh, a ghazwa, there was a, uh, there was an army being raised to go fight a war, to go defend the, the, the Muslims from the disbelievers. And so the morning that the, that the army was about to head out, they lined up in rows as our soldiers do. And as military commanders do, the Prophet wasallam, with walking stick in hand, was going up and down the rows, inspecting the rows, ensuring that everybody was in the condition that they needed to be. And he came upon one of the one of the men, one of the Sahabi, عنه, who was forward of the line a little bit. And so with his walking stick, he gently tapped him to move him back. That man said, Qisas ya Rasulullah. He wanted retribution for whatever injury he uh, was claiming had happened to him from being poked with the stick. And of course the Sahaba were up in arms. Can you imagine? The rest of the Sahaba, they see that this is a ridiculous thing to say. You poked me, Ya Rasulullah, I want revenge. I want my retribution, I want to poke you back. But the Prophet said, let him be, it is his right. And so he handed him the stick. And then the man said, Ya Rasulullah, it's still not the, it still wouldn't be real retribution because I don't have any armor and you're wearing this chainmail armor. So please remove it so that I can poke you the way that you poked me. And of course the Sahaba. Again, and he, the Prophet said, no, he's right. He's absolutely right. And he removed his armor so that he was bare-chested. And of course the man didn't poke him with the stick. Rather the Sahabi hugged the Prophet and kissed him um, on his chest or his belly. And the Prophet laughed. And he said, what is this? And then the Sahabi said to him, Ya Rasulullah, we're going off to battle and it might be that I don't return. So if I'm going to die on the battlefield, I wanted the last thing that I did before I went into war to have hugged and kissed you on your skin. He didn't want retribution. He loved the Prophet ﷺ so much that his last wish if he, had, if he was going to die that day was to have been able to hug the Prophet and to feel his, his torso against his face and to have kissed it. And indeed that man did die that day. And he, he, he met the last of his days on the battlefield as a shaheed. Radiallahu ta'ala anha. So what are, what are these three, what do these three uh, narrations have to do with this idea of rights? I, I selected these three specifically because they highlight this point most emphatically, which is that a right is only what Allah and His Messenger say, and not anything else. It's not that a person is your oldest and dearest friend, one of the first to accept the message, one of those responsible for almost all of the early converts to the deen, the one who was going around spreading the message when no one else would, the one who gave up so much of his effort, who gave tremendous amounts of wealth to support the cause, who was with you during the hijrah, who, when in that in that journey, in the hijrah, when you, when the two of you had had very little to eat or drink for days, and someone presented a bowl of milk, that he said, "No, please, you first, Ya Rasulullah," and you drank from it, 
And then you went to him and he said, no, please, until you're satisfied. And you drank from it until you were full. And then he said, Wallahi, I don't even need to drink or eat anything. My hunger and my thirst are satiated from seeing that you are no longer hungry and thirsty. That kind of true love, someone who loves you that way, who is of noble lineage, who is your father-in-law, so someone who has tremendous rights, right? He's your father, he's the father of your wife. Someone who has all of the qualities, who, is, whose appellation is a Siddiq because of his truthfulness, and the truthfulness relates to his absolute acceptance and adherence of the revelation and of the message and of your messengership. This is one of the, one of the main pillars on which Islam was built in the early period. This person has rights, yet you forego him for this other Sahabi who's unnamed and not of tremendous consequence in the overall history of the deen, the way that Abu Bakr Siddiq is. But you forego him and you prefer the other one saying from the right hand to the right hand. Because it's the sunnah. You go from the right to the right, not to the left. Something seemingly arbitrary. It's not, but it's seemingly minor. It isn't. The seemingly arbitrary minor aspect of our religion, this small sunnah that the right first and then the left, this supersedes all of the mountain of reasons why you should pick Abu Bakr first, why you should pass to your father-in-law, this nobleman, this man who's been everything that a sahabi could be to this deen. From the very beginning, he's done so much. He's given so much. You forgo his honor and his duty and what would normally in any society, what we would think, and if you were to sit there and somebody just presented this to you without you knowing about the sunnah of going to the right, you would say, of course, Abu Bakr, right? But he didn't. He said, from the right hand to the right hand. Sallallahu alayhi wa Or the young boy. Every society that I've ever heard of and everything that I've ever experienced a young child has to give deference to an old man. And there were old men seated to the left and a young boy seated to the right. And in fact, that deference is so high that the Prophet ﷺ didn't just give it to the, to the young boy saying from the right hand to the right hand, but rather he even went as far as to ask that boy, ask the, Allah's messenger on earth is asking this young boy for permission. But he asked, he said, do I have your permission to give it to these people? And when the boy said, No, Ya Rasulullah, I wouldn't want that anyone would have their portion, my, to have my portion from you. He didn't cajole him, and he didn't say, But wouldn't it be better? And he didn't say, Astaghfirullah, don't you see that these are old men? Shouldn't you? You're a young boy, you can, you can wait until they have their drink. None of that. He said, here you go and put it in his hand, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He gave it to the young boy. No more discussion. And perhaps seemingly more plain, more, out, more outrageous, if you will. If you're a soldier and someone with even one rank above you says do something, or you're outside of the regimented lines and that person pokes you a little bit, just to, just a signal to you to move back. Even if, if you're a private and that person is a, a corporal, you don't say, hey, I have rights and you poking me is a violation of my right. You don't enjoin the right to not be poked. Forget about if it's the general or the commander-in-chief of the entire military, let alone if it's the leader of your entire nation, you would never do it. It would be unimaginable. If you saw that, if somebody did that scene in a movie or something, you would be like, what is going on here? Is this guy crazy? Why would you do that? Forget that. Allah's messenger, the emissary of God on earth, 
whom you've accepted as Allah's emissary on earth, and you say, I have rights? The reaction of the Sahaba was understandable. Of the rest of the Sahaba, it was understandable. Those who protested, those who raised, right? And what is the Prophet's response, sallallahu alayhi wa Let him be. He has his right. Or he has a right. Or it's his right. Ya Allah. But this is the nature of revealed truths. Rights are what Allah and His Messenger say they are and nothing else. And even this mountain of reasons why Abu Bakr Siddiq is preferred over this Sahabi who's just referred to as a Bedouin. Or the mountain of reasons why these old men should be preferred over this young boy. Or the tremendous mountain of reasons why you don't question or demand your rights from the Prophet of God Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Despite all of that, what Allah revealed comes first. And even the sunnah of to the right is from revelation, right? And so it takes preference and it comes first and it supersedes. It supersedes any societal norm, any rules that we might think apply, any rational arguments we might think we can make in support of foregoing even the small, so-called small sunnahs. It supersedes. Rights are what Allah and His Messenger say. And if ever there is a conflict between what we think is right and what Allah has revealed, there's no argument to be had. There's not even a, a, there's not even a question to be raised. You go by what Allah and His Messenger have given us and you forego whatever you think is right. Whatever your society has deemed is right. Whatever the current moment has said is absolutely 100% the only way to be, which of course is ever-changing. doesn't matter. None of that comes close to even being a, que- a reason to raise the question. Does it conflict with what Allah revealed? Does it conflict with what we received from the Prophet ﷺ? Then it's done. It doesn't matter. It holds no weight. Even something seemingly as small as from the right to the right. Even that supersedes anything else, no matter how weighty it might appear, no matter how much we go, oh, but reason would tell you, or it's so obvious that whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the scale of things, in the scope of things, Allah's revelation supersedes. Now, when there's no conflict between, when there's something that you're, the society that you're living in thinks or, or, or holds as, as, a, as a moral good, or as an ethical good, or even as a custom, and there's no conflict, there's no conflict between that and what Allah has revealed, then fine. You can accept it. In fact, in 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 the Maliki school, Orf custom, if it's if it's not only if there's no conflict, but if it conforms to what is uh the Sunnah, right? That that custom takes on the weight of Sharia, right? So it's not an unreasonable religion. In fact, and it's not something that it's, we just ignore all culture, all custom, all, you know, on the contrary. At least in, in, in the usul of the Maliki school, in the fiqh of the Maliki school, like say we come to a society where being on time, like if you say 9 o'clock, it means you get there at 8.55 and you're ready to go at 9 if that's the, the cultural custom in that culture, and it's something that conforms with the sunnah, it is something that conforms with the sunnah, isn't it? Then it takes the weight of sharia. For the Muslim, it becomes, a, a, it becomes something that takes on the weight of sharia so that it's rewarded if done. If, if you do it, it's, it's like doing something that's mustahab and you get reward for it. 
because it's something that is within the, the Sharia, it's within the bounds of the Sharia, it doesn't contradict. And in fact, it conforms with what Allah and His Messenger have brought us, right? Which is uh, the keeping of your word. You make an appointment, in some societies, making an appointment is giving your word, and so you have to keep it, right? So it takes on that character, that, that level of, of, of acceptability. And if there's any question about the fact that this is more than just um, an opinion, right? More than just, oh, well, you're reading these hadith in a certain way. Allah reveals in Surah Al-Hujrat, in the first ayah, Allah says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَيْدِ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ Allah says what means, O oh, you who have believed, us, right, the believers, O oh, you who have believed, do not put yourselves before Allah and His Messenger, but fear Allah. Indeed, Allah is all-hearing and all-knowing. That is the meaning of this. Do not put yourselves before Allah and His Messenger, but rather fear Allah, and Allah is all-hearing and all-knowing. And similar, and, and, and similar I, once Allah and His Messenger have decreed a thing, it is no longer for you to have an opinion. So, even if we think it's minuscule, and... You know, I, I raise this issue because I think some of the problems that we're seeing and some of the stuff that we're going to discuss, I think, on the next podcast when it's the whole group with um, Saad and Mu'in and Dr. Shadi. Um, one of the things that I think we're going to discuss with Nila is the rise um, especially, I think, among academics, but maybe others, of this type of neo-rationalist thought, right? Where right and wrong is, I don't want to say at the discretion, but based on the moral reasoning of the individual. So you decide that, you look at a thing and you go, well, this is makes perfect sense to me, and so it must be this, and that that holds the weight of right and wrong. And that, you know, to the point sometimes where revelation, I, I'm sorry, a hadith that are absolutely true, right? That, are, that the Senate is sound 100%, that the person will admit 100%, yes, of course, this Sahabi, met this Sahabi, met this Sahabi, and it, it met this narrator, met this narrator, all the way back to the Prophet wasallam, And we have no question that the Prophet wasallam did say this, or that at least that it is reported from people who have transmitted that report. But the actual text of the Hadith, we disagree with because it doesn't comport to our, net, to our moral landscape. So we reject, or we try to minimize or we somehow dismiss this kind of thinking is actually um something that's happening now among otherwise intelligent uh educated people and i don't just mean western educated i mean you even see people who've trained in madrasas saying ridiculous things like uh, there's yes of course this is a multiple trans a, a, a great example the hadith of the stump in uh masjid nabawi when that the Prophet ﷺ used to lean on the stump when he gave his khutbah in the masjid, and then someone built him a minbar, like a, a like a proper minbar, and then the first Friday that he used it, the tree stump upon which he used to rest began wailing, wailing, crying out, and that it didn't stop until he came over and caressed it. Comforted it. And that this is reported by such a large... This is the Friday Jummah. This is reported by such a large number of Sahabi. That it reaches the level of Mutawatir. It's unquestionably reported as it happened. Their lines of transmission are solid. 
There's no breaks. There's no weakness in the snat, and it's multiple. It's narrated by multiple people across such a wide berth that there's no way that all of these people conspired to create this lie. It's unthinkable. So how? But to you, to this person, these type of people, right? Well, this doesn't comport with my understanding of the nature of reality. So I'm going to make the argument, and I've heard people say it. It's probably, it's totally speculative, right? It's probably that some of the Sahaba, out of their great love of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and don't be fooled by this flowery, lang- flower, flowery language that's used, and it seems like it's all positive. Out of their, they, they, out of their great love of the Prophet wasallam, they exaggerated some parts of some stories, just to 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 uh, you know make make it seem even more wondrous. Are you kidding me? These are people who fear Allah, truly have taqwa. People who know the hadith that anyone who tells a lie. Anyone who reports something from me and, and fabricates it, they're in the hellfire. These are people who have real taqwa. You're going to tell me that they're less serious? They're so unserious about reporting things accurately that all oh, their love overcame them and they all of them just made up you know, this exaggerated story to make it... Why? Why would they need to do that? Why do they need to exaggerate anything to make it seem miraculous? To quote Abu Bakr in in his in in the narration in which we we learn why he is a Siddiq, to quote Abu Bakr radiallahu an, I believe that angels that an angel comes from Allah and delivers a re, a revelation to him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. What else do I I believe that. You think I'm you think I'm gonna be surprised by some miracle? These people need to exaggerate to make the Prophet ﷺ seem more holy or more blessed or more miraculous. They've already accepted and transmitted that an angel descends from the heavens to bring him the message. A book perfect, revealed from Allah, within which there is no doubt, right? We accept that. But we're also going to exaggerate that pebbles were making vicar when he picked them up. It's nonsense. This is because these people are rationalists, quote-unquote. Although I would argue that that's a misnomer. And these people are so-called rationalists. And so they've, uh, they will go to any length to disparage or criticize any hadith. The text of which they disagree with based on their worldview not not that it's an authentic narration even when it's authentic they criticize the content of the of the narration if it doesn't coincide with their worldview how is your worldview primary how does it take precedence who told you how do you even know what your worldview stems from because it's not just your later education and religious knowledge it's also everything that you learned being raised in your society a society that's most likely, especially if you're a Westerner, but even oftentimes in the Muslim world, a society in which God is de-emphasized, in which the scientific method and the enlightenment is reified and maybe even deified. You take all of that, things in your subconscious, experiences, traumas, you know, motivations that you don't even know you have, all of that combines to give you this perspective and you think that 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 is going to be the Furqan, the criterion by which you judge the narrations, a mutawatir narration from the Sahaba. It's madness. It's madness. And again, it stems from this, this, this I think it stems from this need of uh, being accepted and mainstreamed, right? Trying to fit in, trying to get into mainstream society and wanting to be accepted and wanting the religion to be accepted. Right, and I have to tell you, we're not salesmen, and this is not a product. We don't need to push this, as it were. 
This deen is about quality, not quantity. I mean, first, the billions of people that have been Muslim since the beginning of, of, this, of this revelation, billions, they were fine with it the way it was revealed. Add to that that even if not a single person ever became Muslim again, and of course our preference is that everyone accept this deen for their sake, not for us, but for their own sake, that they accept what Allah has given us as revelation so that they'll be saved, so that on the day of judgment they can meet their Lord as Muslims, that they will be part of those whom the Messenger وسلم, will ask for their intercession, will supplicate for. We hope that for every living being, for every human being, we hope that, honestly, I do. But even if, even if not a single other person would ever become Muslim again, unless we change the religion to better fit the current times, and I don't mean in things that are adjustable, like your clothing, your hairs. I mean in things like miracles aren't really that. There's rational explanations for it. Or, yeah, I mean, we live in a time now where gay people have rights. Do they? Why? Because the Supreme Court and Obergefell said they do? Who are they? They don't supersede. Nothing supersedes the revelation. They have rights not to be abused. They have rights not to be uh, mistreated. But they don't have a right to get married because the court said so. As an example. Rights are what Allah and His Messenger have given us and nothing else. Nothing else. And it's certainly not what others say they are in contradiction to what Allah and His Messenger have given us. That's never going to be the case. And we really have to accept that. Um, if for no other reason, look, One of the people whom, from whom I've most benefited in this world once taught us that there's three things. There's only three realities in all of creation, in all of existence, sorry. There's only three realities. You, Allah, and the grave. That's it. Those are the only three real things. And when you get to the grave... When you're put in the ground and your companions walk away and you hear those footsteps and that's the last thing you hear of this world and you feel that constriction, which if you were a believer and a righteous person, that constriction is, for, is momentary and it expands. And for others it will be crushing. And these fearsome angels come to you and they ask you, they're not going to ask you anything about how many people in your neighborhood liked you and did you were you able to were you able to like finesse things about your religion so that you had more friends or you got a promotion or you got people to convert to something other than what Allah revealed some other newfound version of Islam that you know allows whatever it is that these people want allowed so you adjust it for them so that they'll accept so that they'll accept all we don't seek that people accept God on their terms. Rather, people seek to be accepted by God. So the angels won't ask you any of this. And as an aside, they won't ask you about what you did for a living, how many kids you had, what your score in some video game. But they won't ask you about it. They're going to ask you, who is your Lord? Man Rabak? What is your religion? And what do you say about this man, sallallahu alayhi wasallam? This is what you need to answer. And you will only be able to have those answers if you've lived according to what Allah revealed. If you were a person of righteousness, of good deeds, of prayer and fasting in Quran. So, you don't need to change the religion and you don't need to adjust it and you don't need to create rights in conflict with real rights and you don't need to remove rights in conflict with rights that should be there or any of that. 
in order to gain acceptance, in order to gain more Muslims, in order to make the religion more acceptable to people. You don't have to go around, um, I don't know, talking about how, you know, abortion is a right. Who said? We have rules. Our fiqh is very nuanced and it's not black and white like some other religions say that their rules are. But it certainly isn't black and white the other way. It certainly isn't all all abortion all the time, no matter what. To go out as a Muslim and say abortion is every woman's right. You, and, and, and you're talking about in a country that even allows late-term abortions. Like, it's insane. This is not... You don't do that. It doesn't matter if the people won't like you if you don't say it. Let them not like you. Let the people dislike you so long as you're doing it to engender the love of Allah. But don't disobey Allah. Don't put yourself between before Allah and His Messenger, but rather fear Allah. This is what Allah has given us. So... And I, that was just an example that occurred to me, right? And there's others. There's numerous. This is our times. This is the times we live in. And we can't do it. We can't do it. And I'm not going to go more into the rationalists. I brought them up as an example. I think we're going to be talking about that in the next podcast, inshallah. And it should be good. It should be better than this one, obviously. Um, as we'll have Saad and Moin and Dr. Shadi with us. And uh, we'll be able to really expand on it. Um but I, I really just wanted, as a, more, more or less as a precursor to that, to, to, to just broach this idea with you that, you know, people have the rights that Allah grants them. And if you really want to get a little bit more nuanced than that, it may not even be that people, people have a right, but rather that Allah has a right, period. Like... I have a right not to be harmed by you stealing my stuff or beating me over the head with whatever it is, right? I have that right as a human being. As a Muslim, I have a right that my brother doesn't backbite me. But really, Allah has the right that his servant not be harmed. Allah has the right that his creation not be harmed. Now, when it comes to sentient beings... On the Day of Judgment, if our rights have been violated, even if the person made Toba in a Toba that was accepted, we still have that claim on the Day of Judgment over that person that caused us the harm. But at the end of the day, really, these rights obtained unto us from Allah because Allah granted them to us. Allah placed that right in our uh, upon us. But really, Allah is only Allah has rights. And rights among the creation are solely the, at the discretion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's important to remember that. You're not born with any of it. Allah grants it to you. Had Allah not given us a right, we wouldn't have it. None of it. None of it. Whatever it is that we do, whatever rights we do enjoy, it's only because Allah has given them to us. And if He chose not to, we would not have them. Plain and simple. There's no fundamental thing about us that creates or uh, gives us this natural or however you want to put it right. Rights are God given, but they don't. They're not. We're not born with them, so to speak. And this is the more nuance, but it's the more accurate way to look at it. It's not because you were just born with it, but rather Allah chose to give us that, and that creates a reality for us for sure. But it's not. We are not the source. The rights don't spring from the fact that we're here, but rather because Allah says so. Plain and simple. I can't emphasize that enough. So uh, at the risk of being super repetitive, um, or to avoid rather being super repetitive, I'm going to uh, wrap things up now. But I just, I just wanted to, to make sure that this is an idea that we're all considering, right? Because especially for those of us living in Western countries, um, and I think even in the Muslim world nowadays, probably, we're constantly being faced, we're constantly facing this, this onslaught of claims about rights and morals and ethics. And we have to understand that we have our own and they come from a certain source. And that source is not government and it's not, 
you know, majority voting and it's not um, the democratic process and it's not, well, that's the way society is going. You know, the Welt, the Weltenstung is not what determines who's, who wins and who's, who loses or who's right and who's wrong. It's, it doesn't come from that. It doesn't come from that. And we're blessed. I mean, and we're tremendously blessed to know where, in fact, it does. And we don't have to... I'm going to go on just a few more minutes because there's something related to this that I, that I should touch on. You'll see oftentimes in uh, political or social movements, right, the moment, and sometimes it's very stark, sometimes it's less so, in which... There's a conflict between the uh, how do we want to say like the 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 worldview, the ethical worldview of the movement, and the goals of the movement. They come into a conflict, right? <coughs> I'll give you an example. Excuse me. Um. I just want to say before I give it to you that I, this is a subject that I've done a lot of research on. I mean, a lot. I've spent hours and hours and hours, I mean, like triple digit hours, reading about, researching, um, fact checking the Second Amendment. It's a subject that I'm very interested in. It was something that I was interested in um, when I was studying law and have become more interested in since then. Um, and then when long before Newtown, and then when that started happening, um, I, I did more reading and more research and more study. So I know the subject matter pretty well, um, but I'm not making an argument about about it here. But what I will say is that take for instance the um, this this nascent movement of uh, like high school students led by some of the Parkland, Florida students. In the U.S., for those that don't know, there was a school shooting not that long ago. Um, and a, a, a number of students were killed in their high school. And some of the students from that high school, um, a couple of whom were in part of the drama club, so they're actors. So they're used to being in public and on stage. They took the leadership of the movement, um, at least the public leadership. And I don't say that cynically, but there's no such thing as a movement that's completely organic and gets a lot of traction quickly but regardless of that there were some protests this weekend and there have been protests leading up to this um, of people calling for you know stricter gun laws and etc and these are generally going to be left-leaning liberals who have that worldview right so they're they're going to be for equality they're going to be for um, deference to those who are less fortunate. They're going to be for disarmament. Um, often they're going to be for uh, movements like Black Lives Matter. Now, BLM, the organization itself, is a whole other subject, but what spark that or, or what that organization is capitalizing on is a real issue which is police shooting down black people specifically black males and listen those arguments that people make about well but more black people are killed by other black people yeah whatever let me tell you something that's not that's not a, that's not that has nothing to do with this argument and 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 I'll explain how quickly what we're looking at when we say well more black people are killed but what those people are saying is that young black men in certain environments engaged in certain criminal enterprises are far more likely to be killed by other young black men also engaged in those criminal enterprises guess what yeah that's just reality it also happens for Hispanic young men engaged in, in, in drug dealing or gangs killed by other Hispanic young men. It happens for white young men engaged in drug dealing and other criminal enterprises. They're more likely to be killed by other white young men engaged in those criminal enterprises. This is not an argument about anything because the problem that 
we're talking about is that the police who should never kill innocent unarmed people the police are killing innocent unarmed young black people and that's not acceptable it doesn't matter that there's there's gang activity in the inner cities and that as a result of gang and dr- as a result of the drug war there's drug activity which leads to gang activity which leads to violence in poor neighborhoods yeah that's a reality that's nothing to do with the fact that police should not be killing innocent unarmed people period it's not an argument it's not an argument for defending the police you're taking two wholly different subjects and going well why aren't you protesting what are you talking about you can you can protest the fact that people who whose job it is to protect lives are taking lives you can argue you can protest that without being a hypocrite because you're not out protesting the drug war which you kind of should be but one thing doesn't make it doesn't make you a hypocrite to go yeah i know that criminals kill people and protest criminals aren't supposed to listen to protests why would they they don't listen to they don't they don't follow um you know a bunch of citizens walking in the street with placards aren't going to affect the drug business it's not going to happen but what it should affect is municipalities and their employees that are paid with tax dollars whose job it's not the job of drug dealers not to kill people not it's not literally they're literally police are literally paid not to do that police are literally paid not to do that and they're doing it so it's not acceptable all right so these same people who are protesting about for more sh- for stricter gun laws and etc often are intersecting with people who are protesting for protection against police violence they're 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 they should be it seems one would think that they're coinciding with these groups they're intersecting and they're against state violence not just individual violence but also state violence and yet they're not calling for an end to the armament to police being armed some countries do that by the way some countries the police are unarmed or they only have certain specialized units that are armed with that have firearms but that's not what they're asking for and they're certainly not calling for the military to be reduced they're not calling for less tanks and planes and drones and missiles and bombs they're not ask that's not what they're in the streets for they're in the streets for please take away guns from law abiding citizens because occasionally those get into the hands of people who then go and do horrific things and those horrific things are more like they're very unlike the possibility of that actually affecting one or another individual are infinitesimal they're incredibly small but that's the only thing out of all this that's going to affect me gang violence won't police violence won't certainly military violence won't so i don't really care about any of that what i care about is that the gun, the people who kill people in my type of neighborhood usually tend to have be like lawful or lawful-ish gun owners and that's what scares me so i'm out protesting for you to change the laws of this country and disarm all citizens on the outside chance that it might have some impact on me and my kids in our nice safe area there's there's a cognitive dissonance there right because what they should be calling for is disarmament what they should be calling for is less state violence first and foremost actually before calling for disarming citizens and before calling for you know they want to also violate in the United States we have privacy laws uh when it comes to medical and psychological psychiatric care that your healthcare provider does not reveal your medical your your medical status but they're also calling for the piercing of that curtain right the opening up of lines of communication between health mental healthcare providers and the government they want your psychologist and psychologist to go and be able to report you to the police so that you can be disarmed right on the suspicion of somebody who may or may not have a real susp- i mean how many of the people who committed these these crimes were suspected by some how many times has somebody shrink come out afterwards and been like yeah i knew but hipaa laws prevented me from saying anything 
I don't even know if that's ever happened, right? But this is what they're asking for. This is one of the things that they're calling for. Um, and there may be some details to that that I'm missing, but I don't, I'm not sure that I am. They're asking for more information sharing with the government. And they're asking for only police and military to be armed. This is, this is, this is a conflict. And these kind of conflicts come up in these movements all the time. All the time. Right? Like, are you... One of the ones that I saw not that long ago was people were... Um, a lot of women were coming out and saying, we really want to support this movie about Wonder Woman, right? Because it has a female star. It's well-produced. It's well-written. It's well-directed. Out of those Marvel or DC comic superhero movies, it was one of the... Up until that point, it was like one of the better ones that had been made. And so they were like, oh, this is a great opportunity for little girls to see themselves represented. And then the conflict came up where people were like, yeah, but the star of it is also pro-IDF, big supporter, big Zionist, big supporter of like, um, of settlements in Israel, in Palestine. So there's a conflict here. These conflicts arise in almost every social or political movement that occurs, Right. Sorry, this was a really long way to get to the point that I was making, which is that we are tremendously blessed because our, our movements, our worldview is non-conflicting within itself. It's internally coherent. Islam coincides perfectly with Islam. <laughs> You're not going to be full-on supporting something that Allah and His Messenger have brought us and find yourself in conflict with the goals that Allah has given us. We're internally coherent because it's revealed from Allah, because it is from a book that is perfect, and it is from our Creator who created everything. And so secular movements, non-religious you know, philosophies, ideologies, uh, worldviews, they will inevitably come into internal conflict. Right, some of their principles will clash with some of their goals, and it will cause some sort of either cognitive dissonance or a splintering of the group, or you know, rival factions, and it will be the end of the of the movement as it's been going at that point. Not so for this dean. That's why fourteen hundred plus years after the first revelation, we're still going strong and growing, and we just have to be careful that we don't fall pray to you know whatever the current the current trend seems to be um and begin accepting things that will eventually cause an internal conflict at least in our minds right because we'll be misunderstanding what the revelation was so that's it for this week inshallah um i've said something or other that was of benefit to the listeners and to myself and that will that on balance, uh, it'll weigh on the good side of my scale more than on the bad side. And uh, I thank you for your time.